Welcome into Nacho's Glen House Stories. As I always say, kids, at the very beginning of these conversations, um, this is a, a real important one for me personally, because my guest this week doesn't know this, but the work at the Ralston Arboretum uh, since its founding by J.C. Ralston and now with my current guest as director has been super important. Because for anybody who started off like I did, being fascinated by a lot of the tree world of plants, maples and coniferous plants people, this is a really a landmark botanical garden. So if you haven't heard of it, what's wrong with you? First off, you need to. Uh, my guest this week is Mark Wethington, the director of the J.C. Ralston Arboretum at North Carolina State University. Mark, I want you to be the one to do this because clearly you're the most qualified to. Um, give me a little bit of what you see the role of the Ralston as, as a botanical garden. Okay, sure. Um, you know, uh, as you mentioned, JC started the Arboretum and people have credited him with introducing more plants than anybody else in the U.S. And that's, it is completely untrue. It's completely untrue. What JC did was he connected the right people to the right plants. Uh, he got plants um, to growers who would grow them. He got them to uh, specialists who would appreciate them. And he preached tirelessly about great plants to anybody who would listen to him. So it was really always about um, really sharing the passion for plants. Um, a lot of people who, who are gardening now, who are younger, will forget that 20, 30 years ago, you, you could go to every garden center in your area and they would have pretty much the same plants and there would be pretty boring plants generally. And really through the work of JC and a few other people, um, really expanded the the number of plants that you could get, the excitement. He, his goal was to diversify the American landscape. And, um, you know, I think you go into a big box store now and you get more diversity than you would have at a very good garden center 40 years ago. So that's really still what we do. We bring in plants from all over the place. We, we get them from the big nurseries who are breeding them. We get them from, uh, uh specialists and enthusiasts, home breeders, uh, professionals, uh, we get them from wild collecting and we grow them out and we try and see what actually does well. And then we try to get those plants out to people or or get some of the wild collected material that has great properties. We try and get into the hands of breeders who are working with those plants so that they can they can improve them. Uh, and it's an exciting time right now because uh, right now. Uh, the South is is really becoming a, a leader in in plant introductions. It used to be it was all done uh, Pacific Northwest, Mid Atlantic. I mean the the Northeast. Um, that's where all the market was. So all the breeding and all the plant introductions had to fit into that you know Zone Five uh, uh, area. And then if they worked for us, great. But if they didn't, who cared? But now you're seeing um, some of the best breeding come out of the, the deep south where they're really breeding for zone seven, zone eight and, and introducing plants. So there's a lot going on right now. Do you ever get an opportunity to sit back in your role now in what you just said that 
for people that don't know, that is such an important comment that really what JC as an individual and then the Arboretum afterwards, it, it has shifted some of the focus because we so much of the literature, if we were going to say the the gardening think tanks of the universe, Mark, they were clearly focused in Europe. And then large production nursery was in the Pacific Northwest. And the bad part about that was uh, those climates and most of the United States have nothing to do with each other. Those are two spots in the world that have very Goldilocks climates. And yet they were the ones dictating what plants were on the market. When you went into a garden center, you'd see plants that thrive there. But where you're at in North Carolina, where I'm at in Tennessee, where people are at in, you know, uh, Southern Illinois, not so much. Do you ever get a chance to sort of pause and, and reflect on that and say that what the work that you do and JC started at the Arboretum have been really important in changing some of that paradigm? You know, I do sometimes and, and I can give you a concrete example. And this shows just how how rapidly uh, things have changed. Um when I first started uh, at, here at the Arboretum in, in 2007, uh, we had just a phenomenal, phenomenal black gum. It, its leaves stayed clean. It had just this blaze orange fall color, and it was spectacular. And so we sent it off to the biggest tree producer, um, uh, producer of, of young tree liners, you know, to send out to, to nurseries to grow on, we sent it up to them and they grew it out in the Pacific Northwest. And they said, yeah, it's great. But, you know, our market is really, you know, kind of Chicago, St. Louis, uh, New York. And this is a Southern form of black gum. It's just not as hardy as the other ones that we're growing. And so, you know, we're not interested in, in it, you know, Ten years later, that same nursery flies out here to the Arboretum once or twice a year, and we walk around and talk about some great-looking plants because this is where the growth is, um, is, is here in the south. This is where, you know, if you, if you exclude, you know, the desert areas of the southwest, the fastest-growing areas are, you know, Raleigh and Charlotte and Atlanta and Huntsville, Alabama. And, you know, it really is through the South now. So uh, they've they've shifted their idea of where where the market is. And you can see that with, you know, the Southern Living Collection of plants uh, and the, the plants that are coming out of um, Alabama and some of those places that are really, um, you know, great, great plants. And they really do hold up and, and grow well for us in the South. There's also this conversation that happened in an earlier podcast, people, that I was, we were talking with uh, Joe Thompson about Pete Aldoff's work. And one of the things mm -hmm. I think that is so interesting about that from a perennial perspective, Mark, is, you know, we have this weird thing happening where here's Pete using all of these plants super successfully and people applaud his work universally, but so many of them are North American native perennials. But yet those were not plants that you'd see in garden centers historically over the last 20 or 30 years. How when when you you have a large scale grower like that come 
to the Arboretum and you show them some of these things, because one of the topics that's also come up recently is, especially in the, the herbaceous perennial world, that a lot of the plants that people are seeing on social media and people like Pete's work and others are sort of these big plants. They're, they're, they're robust is the word that Pete often uses. But yet in a garden center world, we've sort of had these roundy moundy meatball kind of breeding plants going on for a while. Are you hearing any kind of shift even in those categories as far as people looking and going, you know, maybe I want my echinacea to be really healthy and, and big and maybe not just this tiny squat little echinacea plant? You know, not really. Um, that, that I have not seen that as, as much of a change, uh, which, which is, which is a shame, um, because there are so many great larger plants and, and they do provide so much more, um, depth to the garden when you, when you use them. Um, but you know, people, you know, I, I think, People sometimes forget that that gardening isn't a, a spectator sport, and you do need to get down and, you know, mess with your plants. Uh, you know, this this past weekend was a beautiful weekend. I was out and I was cutting things down and I was, you know, deciding to move things and whatever. A garden is is never a finished product, you know. And and Pete's goal is to be able to plant something and more or less leave it. And so these larger plants, these very robust plants, um, can do that. They'll fill the space if something else doesn't make it. They'll, um, they make for great systems like that. But in gardens and people's home gardens, they seem to often want to, uh, you know, not let the plants touch each other. Everything has to stay in its own perfect little, little mound. People get measuring sticks out, Mark. <laughs> we're very, right. we're very literal sometimes with garden spacing. Overtake my other plant. And I say, that's okay. Plants are cheap. You know, plants and, and in terms of what you buy, plants are, are just, they're the best bargains you can get. You know, you get a nice three gallon shrub for, for what, $30, you know, a, a Daphne people. I say, you know, my Daphne dies. Uh, I don't like Daphne. You get a you know, $30, $50, get a high end place, get a $50, three gallon um, Daphne. It lives for five years. That's $10 a year. How often do we spend $50 on, you know, a bad meal and not think twice about it? Um, but people say, oh, but I'm not going to buy a Daphne. They, they always die. I'm like, five years, five years. Um, that's, you know, people don't keep cars that long anymore. Mm. Um, so you know, there, there really are. And same thing with perennials. They're, they're in the scheme of things. They're, they're inexpensive and they give you great joy. So grow them. And then when you're tired of them, throw them in the compost pile and bring in something new. I love my two. I always tell people my two favorite things in gardening are planting new plants and ripping out old plants. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm not sure which one I like more. Well, and, and there's, there's plants like Baptisia, Baptisia, right? Depending upon where you're from in the universe, people where somebody like Alan Armitage has been talking about them for a long time. A lot of plants people have been waxing poetic about them for a long time, but you just now maybe see them getting some traction in, in a gardening kind of world. Is that a plant that sort of represents some of those problems of the past? Like we're not patient enough to let a plant grow into itself and we want this sort of instant gratification, low maintenance approach. Right. 
and that's they, they that is a classic uh classic plant if you plant a baptisia you know once it's established that plant is a no-brainer it will go and go and go and be a fantastic plant for decades such a good plant but they look terrible in a pot you got one or two little stems in there if you want to get a nice full pot like you would with other perennials you know you would have to grow it for too long in that container it just wouldn't work from a, you know they would cost you sixty dollars um and so it really does rely on communicating that to people um so when i give talks i do i do talks all across the country um always so when i talk about something like baptiste and i and i do wax poetic about it i make sure to tell people now when you go to buy this it's going to look pretty sad in a container it's just it's just going to have a couple of stems and you're going to think why am i getting this plant it out next year it's going to be twice as good as when you bought it and the following year it's going to blow you away but you got to you can't you've got to set expectations for what people are getting um and that's that's the hard part uh i think uh, nurserymen are terrible at selling plants they're terrible you are you are a thousand percent correct, Mark. Let, let me let me let me double down on what Mark is saying here on this subject because in my time in traveling the country visiting independent garden centers, it was fascinating how as a grower or as a plants person, you have these things you're really excited about. You are amped. You're like, oh, this is this is it. And then you walk in to a buyer at a garden center and you're asked about the same four commodity trees and shrubs that they've been buying for 30 years. And yet we have, you know, a, an easy sedum to pick on is Autumn Joy. You see, Autumn Joy has been in the market forever. Uh, there are countless, it feels like, if anything, maybe on the other side of the equation, too many sedums at this point, but so many exciting ones that they're better in, in not only beauty ways, but in practical ways than Autumn Joy. But yet that hasn't been communicated to the consumer, Mark. So so people like yourself, people like myself, what we're doing right now, hopefully are, are moving the needle a little bit. But how influential do you think that comment you were about to make about sometimes the nursery industry has not done a good job communicating to people about plants and expectations in particular? Well, I mean, I, I think it's it, it is something, it's a, it's a mindset um, that that a lot of them have. They just don't feel like they have the time or they need to. I gave a talk to a, a nursery group um, where I was talking about beyond beauty, you know, saying, you know, we're people now who are gardening in, in large measure, they want pretty plants, but they want their plants to do more. They want it to produce fruit. They want it to be good for pollinators. They want it to, you know, reduce inputs. They want, they want to feel like they're saving the world. And one of the before I had time to go on from that, somebody asked me, "Well, you know, that, you're, you're asking us to change out our our you know product lines." I'm like, "No, I'm asking you to change your labels." You know, what's the first question people ask about a plant? Doesn't matter where you are in the country. Is it deer proof? They ask that every time. I'm telling you, when you have a a carex, a fern, an ornamental grass, a lycium, you know, anise shrub, put big on that label. Deer proof. You know, that's something people want. There's there's less input. There's less problems with with that plant. You know, basically, 
almost any plant, you can put it's a pollinator plant because something probably pollinates it, at least most of them. Um, you know, it's there are all these things that we can do, you know, good for wildlife, whatever. And it's just it's selling the same plant in a lot of cases. It's just telling people more about what it does. Um, and don't lie to people on labels. Don't don't tell them their loripetalum is going to grow three feet tall when it's going to grow eight feet tall in five years. Um, you know, <laughs> that that's very are you concerned? I, I talk about this a lot on the podcast and, and it's been a reoccurring theme, Mark, with nearly every guest. Did we hit a point where we especially here in the United States? Did we dumb it down too much? Did we get to a point where by dumbing it down, we stripped away all the things that actually make it interesting? I, yeah, I think so. You know, it, one of my big frustrations uh, with, you know, botanic gardens share a lot in common with museums. And do you know what the standard in a museum is for signage? No. 12 years old, sixth grade level. That's mm. what you should do your signage at, at a sixth grade level. And museums are supposed to be places you learn. And we all have, um, you know, supercomputers in our back pockets now with our phones. You don't have to dumb it down. You don't. You can put, you know, we have a, instead of a bold border here, we have a geophyte border. And we tell what a geophyte is. And we talk about bulbs, corms, tubers, and large hypocotyls. Um, you know, and, and, and we don't dumb it down. You can Google enlarge hypocotyl and find information about um, cyclamen in there. You know, it, we don't, when you dumb it down, nobody learns anything. Right. You are presenting information at a level that they mostly already have. So we need to raise that. And, you know, in my, in my darker minutes, I think, God, people are dumb. <laughs> But but really, I don't believe that. I believe we allow people to be dumb by by talking down to them. I agree with you. I, I, I am I'm with you. I, I have the same dark moments, Mark. We are we are there in the <laughs> same together. But yet, I guess I've taken a lot of confidence in the last two years or so when I became pretty public on social media. We've gathered a large following. I, I lean directly into taxonomy. I. I nomenclature matters to me. Uh, these are the the things I think we have underestimated the audience. I don't think we've given them the respect they've deserved. And I think so much of that is because it's just been driven by commerce only. Because at the point of sale, historically, when you talk brick and mortar sales, the the argument I would always get from independent garden center owners was, well, we don't have the time for that. Well, you know, we're dealing with customers and we've got so many people. You haven't been here after Mother's Day. You know, I would be on Long Island and someone would say to me that, well, you haven't seen our Mother's Day. We've got cars parked around the block, right? So we can't spend that time with each customer. So we just got to get them going. Well, and I would argue that, well, you don't have those customers anymore because the two French stores have taken a lot of them, Omdipas and Loess, and you weren't building long-term success. Right. You know, what, what, when, what do the independent garden centers have over the, the big box stores is knowledge and information. So if they're not providing good knowledge and information and they're both getting the same plants from the same growers, people are going to go to the, get it cheaper. Um, but people will, 
people will be loyal to a place that they feel not just is nice to them, but is is helping them be successful, is investing in them. And that's what education is. You're investing in that person. You're, you are creating a better gardener. You're creating something that's going to be more successful. And, and I've, I've worked in retail. And you know what? Mother's Day weekend, not the weekend to educate everybody. I agree with that. Get them in, get them out. Make that money that day. <laughs> but the other days of the week, you better you better be investing in people by teaching them and helping them and making sure they get plants that will work you know for them and not just saying them having them come in and say they want x plant and they're going to put it in a spot that's not going to do where it's not going to do well try to try to show them some other things that will give the effect they want but will will thrive are you happy now because this is something i have found pretty remarkable and i had to sort of pause myself and lift my head up out of the sand occasionally to remind myself of it, that we can do things like this now, right? You and I can have this conversation. I know you guys have been very actively doing a lot of content where you get into topics and really explore them in in an educated way, like what we're talking about, that just 15, 20 years ago, that wasn't accessible. Like there was no way to do that. We didn't have social media. We didn't have, you know, a, a, Tim Cook driven device in our pocket, right? Moving the narratives along that really we were limited to that point of purchase with that consumer at that place. We were at the mercy of whoever they interacted with. And then like gardening media magazines, I won't even go into them, Mark, because they'll get mad at me if I say too many bad things about them. But that's all. That's all we had. So some of the best voices in the world of plants, we didn't have the access because of that. But now we do. Yeah. Oh my God. It's, it's amazing. Um, when we had to shut our gates here at the Arboretum, uh, we wanted to stay connected to, to our members and folks. So we started a weekly, um, you know, weekly lecture series on, you know, online. And we get, we have our lowest number of people on there has been somewhere in the 120 person range. They're generally, 180. They've gone up to almost 300, depending on the topic. Um, and people want to hear this. And so we have reached more people with more in-depth knowledge than me zipping around all over the, the country and the world, giving, giving talks to rooms with, you know, 50 to 500 people. Um, and, and then after, after we do this live, we put it on YouTube. And, you know, so then it's out there for for long term and we've got uh i'm doing several things where uh master gardener groups are saying we're going to show your show your youtube video and then we'd like you to be to to join us at the end for a q a so not only is this getting that you know me by, by me doing it one time we're hitting all kinds of more people but it's also saving a ton of my time and being more effective. And I'm still getting, you know, a personal um, connection and being able to have that back and forth, which is so important. But I'm not giving the same talk eight times. You know, I'm giving it once and, and it's reaching different audiences in different ways. And it's fantastic. And, you know, the information you get on, uh, you know, all the social media, you know, just as simple as what is this plant? Um, there's so many of these communities on social media where people are so supportive. Um, you have experts on, I mean, the world experts in a lot of cases on some of these plant groups. 
and a new person comes in and you know you got other people who are talking about rare and exotic aeroids and then somebody comes in and they've just bought um you know a, a, a peace lily at a big box store and they say you know the leaf tips are turning turning brown what's wrong and these these people come in and you know help out it's amazing that that you can have the this kind of community that um you didn't have before and i want to get your take on this because this is something that i'm very hopeful for that through a lot of what we're talking about right now i i really have felt there wasn't a place for the person to elevate historically in this lane the the person who maybe goes into a big box store and they buy Acer Palmatum, it's probably blood good people, or it's just atroperperam. You don't even know. It's just in a random can that just says red leaf maple. You have no idea. But th- that that was it, right? They start there, which is, hey, everybody enters the the world somewhere. But right. then there was sort of nowhere to go from there. There, there wasn't anybody to else to to lean into. It was like we we didn't get that person who, like you're saying, maybe they're they're growing that maple and suddenly there's these weird black spots on the stems and they're like i don't know i googled something it's pseudomonas pneumonia pseudomona no pneumonia there was nowhere to go mark but i think now we're giving some of those people who not everyone clearly but there there's at least an opportunity to elevate and get a group of new people who can be more educated moving forward yeah i agree and one of the most important aspects of that yeah, I think there was a there's a generation that that skipped out. You know, people grew up, uh, you know, my age and older. You know, gardening with a parent, gardening with a grandparent, and then we hit a point where both parents were were working typically, and the, no, the person didn't grow up gardening, and now they want to. They want to get in there and garden. They do want to um, learn, but they didn't learn how. And they're so used to there being a right way and a wrong way. And that's not what gardening is. Gardening is uh, an, you know, more of an exploration. And so when they're, they're finding this community online, you know, with the problem with their Acer palmatum, um, you know, they're, they're hearing from other people who have also had problems. And they're hearing that having issues and things dying and things not going right and putting plants in the wrong place that's all part of the journey and that's okay. It's failure in gardening is okay. You know, the more compost you have from dead plants, the greener your thumb's going to be. You just got to kill enough plants to have good compost. So, so they're learning that that's all right. And I don't know when you go into a garden center, that's not necessarily what you hear. Um, you hear about what you did wrong and, you know, maybe you get, you know, you get another plant that'll maybe help you do better. But, but I think I see in some of these, these online forums where, where people will, will help you solve the problem before it gets too bad. But even if not, they'll say, you know, don't worry about it. You know, what you need to do next time is X, Y, and Z. And, you know, this happens to the best of us. And, you know, and so people feel a little bit better about failure. Well, and and wouldn't you say, I mean, that's really in many ways, I think uh, one of my my favorite people for this was is uh, Gary G, who was a conifer person up in the Upper Midwest in Michigan, who who said to me one time, and I think most gardening people agree on this that you don't really know a plant till you've killed it three times, 
And right. <laughs> that mo- some of the mission even of the Ralston to this day is you're going to lose some plants, people. It's like you're bringing in these new things, you're experimenting, you're doing these things. Isn't that still something that you see today? I'm sure there. Oh, yeah. That, oh, that's it. Exactly. And, you know, we've had two mild winters in a row. So we have all kinds of things in the garden that I know are not going to be hardy long term. And so I'm hoping this winter we have a cold, cold winter. Um, you know, I love these odd uh, weather patterns when we have them because I want to know what's going to hold up during a drought. I want to know what's going to, um, you know, what is actually going to be hardy. We're growing a ton of hardy begonias. Well, how hardy are they? They made it through a couple of winters that were very mild. What's going to happen when the ground actually freezes here? Because it hasn't for a couple of years. So we're fascinated with that. We we like to really be able to to test our plants. And, um, you know, we're not a big area. We, we've got 7,000 plants in the ground and 10 and a half acres. Uh, if we don't kill plants, um, we're going to run out of space really quickly. So, you know, that is part of what we do. We we kill plants from, you know, weather or whatever. We see they have bad with pests. We rip them out and say, okay, there's something better. It, you know, it can be a great plant, but once we've evaluated it for long enough, which, you know, maybe 15 or 20 years for a tree, um, you know, we get the chainsaw out and out it goes and, and something new comes in. So, uh, it's a it's a always changing um, landscape here, but that's part of what makes it fun and separates us from a lot of other gardens. Well, and I think that also just gives proof to what you're saying, because I think so many times, Mark, there's this thing with plants that exists with like almost nothing else I can think of that's a, a, a good that you buy as a product, that there's this mortality attached to it that people have. And when they kill it, as you said, they're like, I killed it. And then they have some kind of emotional, personal responsibility for that. When so often the plant you're planting, I can, you know, digitalis in the South is a great example that I was ranting on the other day, right? So I had this digitalis purpurea, one of the newer first year blooming cultivars that is on the market. And it does horrible. By the time you get to this time of year, it just looks like complete trash. It didn't even really look that great in the spring. It's very on a scale of zero to 10 digitalis. It's like a five. It's very what I would expect from digitalis purpurea. But I know that. So I just sort of look at it and go, yeah, that's why I don't grow you that much. But if I'm just an end consumer gardener and I buy that, I have this experience where my whole world collapses, right? I'm like, what did I do? I must have done something. Oh, I have more times I will get that somebody come in and say, you know, I have this shrub and it's right beside my my walkway into my house and it's thorny and it grows so fast. And, you know, it'll scratch your leg. It'll tear your pants when you walk by. And, and it's so vigorous. I got to cut it back three times a year. You know, what's what's the best way to to maintain it? And I say, rip it out. And they look at me like I'm crazy and say, but it's healthy. But, but you don't like it. <laughs> if you don't like something, get rid of it. Try something else. You know, if it doesn't look good in your garden, if it's even if it's performing the way it's supposed to, you know, at about a five, <laughs> the way it typically does. If it didn't if it didn't make you happy, rip it out. That's and, and people. But, you know, it's alive, though. It'll be covered in insects and all kinds of things. And people ask, you know, this, my plant gets these gets these bugs every year. What should I spray on? gets it every year, get rid of it. Don't, 
you don't have to keep plants that aren't good. Um, and man, I think that's that's part of the the growth of a of a gardener is realizing that um, you know some things just don't work for you. What I, I actually I just saw on the Instagram before we went live here that you've got a cornice that you guys just recently named White Jade. Yeah. It looks spectacular, by the way. The bark on it just mm-hmm. as as someone that has waxed poetic after Pinus bungiana for quite some time, this was a bark that I was like, oh. Because I, I bought that silver ghost, which, which by the way, people, Mark and I are just having a tree gate conversation at the moment. <laughs> but uh, Pinus bonjana, which is a lace bark pine out of uh, China, there was a variety that came out of, I think, the Dawes Arboretum called Silver Ghost. It was never mm-hmm. so silver for me. It was a little bit more on the greeny kind of tin, like most of the bonjanas are. Tell me about some of that. Like, I, I'm still super excited at the fact that you guys are still trialing and selecting new cultivars yeah and it kind of comes from all over the place so something like the um the white jade dogwood um it's a it's asian dogwood it's not one that's widely grown cornus wilsoniana um and it has spectacular bark and so we have collected more and more from the wild of that same species and we realized the one that we've been growing the longest is by far superior you know it was the only one we knew so um but once we realized how much superior it was we we've named it and and are trying to get it out and and nurserymen are are really excited about it down here it's it's gorgeous plant so some of them comes from just things we've been growing and trialing for a while that we may have brought in you know any from from different uh methods but we're also we're doing more and more actual breeding here um our red buds are especially uh, you know kind of our uh you know the feathers in our cap you know we just released a weeping gold leaf red bud uh golden falls and uh really a game-changing one um i don't know if you've seen flamethrower but it emerges burgundy and then goes to kind of orangey copper and then chartreuse and it keeps flushing out new growth over the season and it is uh, it is a show stop are you actively involved when we have that sometimes gap that exists right we have a new plant like flamethrower we want to get it on the market to the consumer right because that's the ultimate goal here is that's the thing with all plants people by the way gardeners everybody i said this the other day about the cut flower industry people no offense to you cut flower folks but as garden people are nicer we always bring a plant with us. We're always giving people plants. Like nobody leaves a property without a plant. It's like somehow you travel with them in your suitcase, despite you've traveled 1,100 miles. This is how it works. People yes. who garden want other people to garden because then we can talk to you about it. The gap that sometimes exists between flamethrower, new introductions of Circus canadensis, but then at the point of sale, they've been bringing in forest pansy for x decades and they're like nah we don't like that new thing how involved have you been do you work with some of the growers that are trying to introduce these new varieties to get them excited and then hope that gets passed along um yeah i will say some plants are do it very well um other plants not so much you know i find it interesting the name recognition in plants so you know who does great with has done traditionally great with name recognition apples you know people go to the store and they're like oh i want a gala i want a pink lady i want a fuji i want you know uh red delicious don't know why 
Um, but, you know, people know apples by name, right? You don't just go to a grocery store and buy apples. You go to a grocery store and buy peaches. But if you go to a farmer's market, you know, they may be telling you that you're getting, uh, you know, uh, Oriental Pearl or um, or whatever. And it was interesting. A while back, uh, my wife asked me to pick up a cantaloupe. She goes, but only get it if it's an Athena. I like those. I was like, Wow. People are knowing the names of them. And there are all these different varieties, but you just go buy a cantaloupe. And so sometimes it's just a matter of getting people to kind of get that branded name or, you know, the actual name of the plant. And sometimes it's easy. Flamethrower is so unique. Um, my, my mother, the English teacher, would not like that, is unique. You can't be so unique or very unique. You're either unique or you're not. It is the only thing like it out there. And I have one out in my, a young one out in my front garden. And somebody who walk, walks down the street every day actually stopped and said, is that a flamethrower? So a lot of times it's, it's a matter of getting people to ask for the plant by name. Um, I find it works best if you work from both the 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 grower, the retailer, but then also the public, which is why we try and talk to people um, all the way across the the line. And isn't that interesting how in so many ways we're, we're walking back what we just talked about a few minutes ago, that by dumbing it down, we lost a lot of that ability, right? right? We lost our branding narratives. Essentially, people, if you want to put on a marketing branding director hat here for a second, that's what we did. We lost a lot of the ability to differentiate products on the market. So Iris became this purple Iris Germanica that your grandmother grew, despite the fact that it's this huge genus with thousands of cultivars of all colors, shapes, habits, and exposures. But yet Iris on the market to 99% of human beings is a purple flower your grandmother grew. The end. And I, and I think a lot of the big nurseries have hurt themselves. I think all the branded pots where they're like, they're not trying to differentiate the plant. It's if it's grown in this color pot, then we're going to get people so that they, they like, you know, any plant that's grown in this color pot. Well, you're really hurting yourself there because you're have, the assumption then is that everything in that pot's going to grow in the same type of conditions, as, you know, and not everything you grow in that purple or blue or green or pink pot is going to be good for everybody. And so they've, they have, a lot of nurseries have emphasized the nursery brand or a, a series brand over the individual plants. The individual plant that's in that pot doesn't matter as much as the pot does. And, um, and I think that's, I think that's long-term a mistake. Agree completely. I mean, we've seen two groups that we've spoken recently on the podcast about with Chuck Pavlich at Terra Nova Nursery, where Echinacea and Euchra, where both of those groups had this, what felt like a huge wave of plants come onto the market. They were new introductions, but both of them had some parentage species issues that made them not perform well in hot southern gardens and quite frankly, even a large percentage of east of the Mississippi in the United States, and then suddenly we've we've lost uh, a reputation of a plant has been damaged a little bit by the fact that we didn't clearly define what they were, and right. I, I think that's something that 
that everybody, hopefully, we always say this, you know, obviously, Mark, everyone always says this, that we hope we will learn from our mistakes. But you know what I'm saying? Who knows? Um, Do you think you mentioned earlier a lot of interesting things happening in Southern growing gardens and, and that vibe? Do you feel as if there's an opportunity here because of that? That, you know, I'll, I'll pick on Pete Aldoff again here, that his style of gardening and, and some of the natives, actually native to this part of the world that he's using, that we could start seeing gardens, not totally to that place, but with a lot of that kind of style, a more full, robust style of gardening than maybe what we've seen in the last 20, 30 years or so? I, I hope so. Um, you know, I hope we see all kinds of, of different things, um, different styles of gardening. You know, I love what Pete does. I think it's, it's amazing that matrix style planting where it's, it's, um, just full dense, the, the, some of the stuff that was done around, um, the, the Olympic parks in, in London, um, same thing where it was direct seeded these big areas and it was, you know, but it was very carefully thought out what was going in there. Um, and it wasn't necessarily all, all native plants, but it was all plants from uh, similar um, eco regions um, that, you know, it might be South African and Mediterranean and, you know, uh, you know, Southern California uh, plants, but that, that come up and they take the place of turf that, is not being used for anything. Um, you know, turf definitely has its place. I'm not an anti-turf person, but we have so much area that, that we deal with, with turf where we're, uh, mowing it and, and things like that regularly, which is such a waste of fossil fuels and time and everything that we could be doing something. Some of that takes a little bit of, uh, training people to look at areas differently because, you know, right now for Americans, turf is is clean and tidy, and this kind of exuberant meadow is messy. Uh, but but then I also think there's room for more formality, and uh, you know, so I want to see it. I want to see it all. Yeah, and do you think that there's been? This is an issue that I often have. I, I really want to pick on a particular location, but I'm not going to because I'm going to play nice on the podcast today, kids. I don't know why. It's Monday as we record this. I'm not quite sure why. But there are a lot of botanical gardens across the United States that are really glorified parks. They're mm-hmm. not really plants, people, institutions. They're not trialing new things. They're not putting in perennial herbaceous borders. They're, they're not really that. Do you worry sometimes that we don't have enough visual examples for people to see, for people to go to? Like there, there are more of them, obviously, in the UK because of the scale of the country also. But there's places where you can say, go here. You know, we don't have a lot of them in the United States comparatively. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, I mean, more gardens in my mind is always better. I I have come around in a lot of ways on a lot of gardens and think that there is there is room for 
a lot of different ways of being a gardener. Um, so I used to, you know, turn up my nose at these places that were more parks than, than gardens. But I've come around. I think it's important that people come out are outside and that they're they're interacting with nature. Um, so I say, you know, that's that's all good. It's a it's a different type of, of botanic garden. It's not one that I would want to work at personally because I'm a plant guy and I want I want to be surrounded by interesting plants and I want to talk about plants and I want to show people plants. Um, sometimes to the detriment of design, quite honestly. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're real lucky. Where I am in North Carolina, we have three university gardens. We have uh, UNC Botanic Garden, which strictly does conservation. That is that is 98% of their focus is native plant conservation. We don't do conservation, native plant conservation, because NC Botanic Garden is going to do it. And so we don't need to. We've got Duke Gardens, which has wonderful plant collections, is a beautiful garden, is being maintained well. Their, you know, their hardscapes are amazing. Really just doing some of the best horticulture on the East Coast, I think. And we have the Ralston Arboretum, where we're much more of a, a, a research and extension focused garden, where we are trying, we're evaluating plants, we're trialing them, we're breeding them, and then we're trying to get that information out. Uh, it, it's, we never want to have the only plant of something. We want to have the first one, but we don't need to have the only one. As soon as we get it, we start propagating it and getting it out to other people. Um, and so between the three of us, three of us gardens, we're really doing everything that, uh, that any botanic garden could and should be doing, I think. And so if, if we had more gardens, we're just going to be able to do even more. Uh, so you know, you look at you look at Philadelphia where you can't throw a, a stone without hitting a public garden and they're all doing doing pretty well. You know, there's you know, there's the big boys, Longwood and Chanticleer. And, but then there are a lot of smaller gardens that are that are really thriving. So and, and they're all very different. And I think that's that's the important thing is, you know, it isn't one thing because one thing appeals to me and another thing might appeal to you and something else appeals to somebody else and inspires them. Where do you see a couple of groups of plants here as we're, we're heading down the, the last quarter here, Mark? I want to get your take on this is, and everyone knows this is coming. Listeners on a weekly basis, you know what word is coming next because everyone who's been on the podcast in the last month, I throw this botanical out there. Epimediums. Yep. Love epimediums. Love them to death. But we had Karen Perkins from Garden Visions, uh, Epimediums on recently. And I guess I can hear a little bit that it's a struggle bus. You know, it, it's a little bit of a, it's a challenge plant. It's not something that just walks out her door or many people's doors. Where do you think that plant is in the general context of the plant world at the moment? Um, you know, it, it kind of had its heyday you know, 15 years or so ago and, and kind of um, disappeared from from people's um, palates a little bit. Um, I I love epimediums. Uh, there are, you know, most of them are marketed as evergreens. And what they are are plants that didn't have the decency to 
um, drop all their leaves and stems. Um, so, you know, people don't mess with them, don't touch them. And then flowers come up in the spring and they're, they're kind of concealed by, uh, ugly foliage and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I really like them. And I think there's some amazing, amazing ones out. You're talking about big and small. There are some, you know, the giant, which foliage gets to be, um, you know, three feet tall, four feet tall flowers above that. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're height as these plants that are great for dry shade and they do survive in dry shade. I don't know that they actually thrive there. So we take a plant, we put it in a tough spot and we expect it to be beautiful. Um, but if you, you know, plant it how you would your hostas and things like that, I mean, they're spectacular plants. And a lot of them have, you know, they have flowers that come up often before the foliage. And then many of them have, when the new foliage comes out, they're speckled and spotted, they're different shapes. Um, and, and they look pretty good all season. And then in midwinter, what you need to do is just mow them over. Um, you know, I literally do it with a lawnmower. I do a lot of my herbaceous plant pruning with a, with a lawnmower because I'm a lazy gardener. Um, but if you want to do them with, snip them with your, your, your pruners, you can do that. You just don't want to wait until it's starting to flower. You got to hit it earlier than that. Um, but, but I, I mean, I think, I think some of the new epimediums that are coming out, the colors, the, I'm just, they blow me away, but you don't see them in garden centers very much. They're one that you kind of like the, um, the, the sedums that you still see, uh, the, you know, kind of the old, um, you know, sulfurium and things like that. That's out there. it. That's it. Well, and where do you think we go with boxwoods? This is clearly a very southern comment with boxes. We've people are are more familiar with boxwood blight than they were just ten years ago. Clearly, it became a thing for people who are in that like average home gardenery kind of world. Are there other things people should be exploring that you're excited about that you guys have worked with at the Ralston? Are boxwoods going to remain sort of a staple despite some of the challenges? So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh put out some of my biases here. You're asking me if we can find a replacement for an evergreen plant that has some disease and insect issues that smells like cat pee on a warm day. <laughs> I think we can find other plants <laughs> <laughs> that will fit there. Um, you know, I, I've, I get that it's a very traditional thing and I get that, that people like tradition. I grew up in a colonial style house uh, in Southern, uh, Virginia with boxwoods out in front. Um, two things, there are some great boxwoods coming down the pipe, which are, which ha are showing some resistance. So there's that, but there are, yeah, I was just in China, um, October last year and we collected about, um, three or four different hollies that, Boy, I think you could introduce them right now and they would people wouldn't even realize they weren't boxwoods. I mean, even more than than a Japanese holly. Um, we we've released a a native viburnum. It's native to the southeast, viburnum obovatum, uh, which is an ugly, scraggly thing. We've released one called uh, Ralston Hardy, which is a dwarf form. Uh that's, you know, a nice little green meatball, except 
flowers. It'll start flowering in um, fall a little bit and flower through the through the winter off and on, and then boom in uh, April or so, it'll cover itself in white flowers, and then you know after that, it's an evergreen meatball again semi-evergreen in very, very cold winters, you know, so there you've got a green meatball, but it's, uh, it's a green meatball that's got white flowers. And, you know, I, I'm always about having flowers on my plants. And so I've, again, never really got the incredible appeal of, of a boxwood that doesn't even have showy flowers. That, that, that makes you and you and I both Mark. Uh, I, I still don't understand it. People. It's like all of you guys are doing reverse parterre gardening. You're throwing these boxwoods right up against your house. You need to move them. In. If you're going to do it, at least move them like 15 feet from your house and then doing something interesting inside the boxwood. I've never understood the reverse of this. So how did, did those conversations go for you? Cause you probably are someone in a unique position that has them with large scale growers, you know, mm-hmm. on the West coast, when you try to talk to them about a change like that, like it, I, I know for them, because something like boxwoods for those of you guys that aren't familiar with this, it is a crop that you might have some people even do 10 year rotations on something like a boxwood where you're wanting to grow these larger specimens. So you've essentially got the next five, 10 years, even maybe already planted out. So you just can't be like, I'm done with boxwoods. Like you can't do that. But how do you baby step folks maybe in that direction? Or are they open to it? Yeah. I mean, that's the tough thing. I, I, you know, one, I don't give growers a hard time growing things that they can sell. You know, that's the name of the game. They're, they're trying to, to, um, you know, they, they've got to they've got to sell something. They can grow anything in the world, but if it doesn't sell, they're not going to stay in business much longer. Uh, you know, so you know, it's in a lot of cases, it's baby steps. You know, it's maybe they in those fields, especially ones where people come in and kind of select plants. You start growing some other things uh, that that mimic boxwood, so that people say, "Oh, what's this?" And you know, you can talk about it a little bit, and if nobody bites on them, then, you know, you, you haven't converted, you know, fields and fields to, um, to a crop that won't sell. Uh, and then it's also getting other people, um, kind of thinking that way. So maybe it isn't the boxwood growers who are switching over, but maybe it's another nursery who is doing boxwood alternatives, uh, that, you know, that's maybe one of their lines of, of products is, boxwood alternatives and you know they they grow several of them and maybe some never people are never interested in and so they drop them but um you know there there's there's enough variety out there for everybody and i'm not saying people shouldn't plant boxwoods and I'm not saying growers should stop growing them but you know there's some nurseries here in north carolina that are closed down because boxwood blight came and they were growing boxwoods and they had boxwood blight in their nurseries and couldn't get past that couldn't they were doing one crop one way and the idea of changing any of that was more than they could handle for whatever reason so i think anybody who's growing one crop like that is is courting danger you mentioned doing breeding work now 
Is there anything specifically like, like are there things you're excited about that you've wanted to work on that now you guys are getting an opportunity to maybe head down that path with? Oh boy. So much. Um, we're continuing to work with red buds. Um, and really all of our releases so far and probably our next releases as well have all been Circus Canadensis strictly, but we're doing more bringing in, some of uh some other species um some of the asian species into uh Circus canadensis so for instance there's a great relatively unknown species uh that uh that we've collected in asia that gets great fall color so you know now that's something we want to bring more into the, the canadensis um uh, form is that is that fall color uh, there are uh, red buds with a real racemous flower. So instead of having the flowers really tight against the, the stems, they hang down like little miniature wisteria. But the species that, that does that the best has, been, has proven to be kind of an iffy grower. It doesn't, it's not as tough as our native. So we want to bring that into uh, our, our native species. And then, you know, we want to do gold leaf weeping ones with those long flowers and good fall color. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot to do there. And we actually were, we're uh, bringing in a new plant breeder um, starting in a few months. And so myself and a couple of the, um, the folks that I, uh, that I work closely with who really think about plants, we've, we've got a document started where we have just got this list for this breeder that, uh we want to um you know we want to uh bring in you know we want to I, I mean it could be anything it could be you know reducing you know stolen length on uh bamboo um mm. they've done that with some other grasses could it be done with bamboo so you have you know your black your black stemmed bamboo but it's a clumper rather than a runner or you know do a lot we want to do with uh, breeding sterility into plants like we did with some of our uh, earlier uh, butterfly bush, you know, like um, uh, blue chip and, and some of those breed breed sterility in because that's that's a pretty critical issue. Has it ever surprised you as it, it has me that in the perennial world and the annual world, there's been a little bit of not a little bit, a lot of effort into purposeful crossings like what you're talking about but the tree world and shrub world has been a little bit more random it's been a little bit more less left to chance and are we heading in a direction maybe like from what you're saying that we're going to sort of reverse engineer some of these plants that are out on the market or creatively look at it and go okay what's not in the market and maybe making more intentional crosses than what's been done in the past um, certainly, um, I, you know, but I, I would push back a little bit on that. There've been some folks who've interviewed plants who their, their breeding method is just putting a bunch of the same plants together and, um, and then sowing a bunch of seedlings and seeing what they got. And, but, um, you know, folks like Tom Ranney here at NC state and, uh, you know, a lot of magnolia breeders and, and work that's been going on at, at Morton Arboretum and some of their their tree uh, breeding and and Nash, the National Arboretum, you know, there's been a lot of intentional 
in, intentional crosses with you know specific goals in mind. So I think there's been a little of this and a little of that. Um, <clears throat> I do think uh, that there's there's going to be more in that. People are are finding that. Um, it can be lucrative with with flowering trees, at least. It's a little bit harder when you get into the shade trees uh, to make big dollars on those. But, um, you know, the, some of the flowering trees, they've, they've done, done pretty well. So I think I think you're going to see even more of that. Um, and, you know, yeah, we, we usually work from an area of what would we like to see? What would it take to get there? And so you have kind of in your breeding, you have, you know, the open pollination where you just take the seeds, sow them and see what you get. You have the, you know, where you're moving pollen from, you know, intentionally. And and then you can start getting into a lot more of the, um, you know, you can start doing some uh, treating seeds and seedlings with different substances to induce mutations, uh, which which people do. And then the next thing is getting really into the genetic manipulation. Um, and that's, I think, uh, you know, that opens up a whole new world. Um, I'll give you one on for me, Mark, that personally I've struggled with for uh, we're approaching 13 years, people, which is on Acer Palmatum that mm -hmm. here where I'm at and similar for you as well, where you're at, we are much more likely to get a spring frost event then we sometimes are a fall frost event. And mm -hmm. those spring frost events, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I had two of them here this year, one in April and then one again even in May this year, which was crazy late. But yeah. I stare at Easter Palmatum Hogioku every year and it's tight as a drum in May still, where a lot of the newer introductions and even older introductions in the marketplace for cultivars, uh, Wilson's Pink Dwarf, is an example of this. That thing leafs out. There's a warm breeze in February and the leaves are starting to emerge. They're breaking. So is that the kind of thing that you guys would maybe be leaning into that's a little bit more in that practical way, but even yep. but is something that is a very prominent problem for some groups of plants? Yeah, I think I mean I think something like that is a great idea. And certainly, you know, the magnolia folks have been doing that. They you know, they've been breeding to get later flowering so it doesn't hit that frost and you know, leafing out. Um, yeah, you know, it's I imagine where you are, it's a little bit more of an issue than where we are. So it's but it certainly happens, but so it's not something I've necessarily thought of, but but yeah, I think it's um you know, I think it's a it's a great idea and may really um, uh, expand the the range of of Acer palmatum. Give me in the wrap up question here, Mark. I have, you're, you're someone that's this is a difficult question for me to ask you, and this is a cheesy question, so I don't ask it typically. But I will of your position because you get to see a lot of cool things that even I don't get to. And am I jealous? Yeah, I'm probably a tad jealous. Probably a tad jealous, people. Give me something that you're you've seen recently in the last yearish or so that is either a new plant, a new cultivar, just something that struck you as like, wow, this this has really got my attention of the moment. Okay, um, ooh, there are so many great things out there. Well, that's the thing too, Mark. There's, this is what also I, I guess it pains me sometimes because when you look at the world we're in, we've got so many great plants now. So whenever I go to a garden center and I don't see the anything, it looks like the same plant selection they've been buying in for 20 years. It just hurts my heart 
because mm-hmm. I know that we are living in this time where you know people like yourself still exploring, other people going all over the world, breeding, all these things. We've got so many incredible choices to see these not so great choices that aren't even like the tried and true. They're just like the ones that became commoditized. Uh, Stella Dioro, Daylily is one that comes to mind clearly still grown by the Babylonians and has single-handedly ruined the look of Hemerocalus around the world. But anyhow, that's my 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 fear sometimes is that so when I when I get a chance to talk with somebody like yourself, I think we've we've got to get these new plants out there or even just new cultivars or something that's old is new again kind of thinking. All right. I'm I'm gonna give you one that is uh is still still a bit of a pipe dream. How's that? Sounds good. Something that that I don't have um that I would like to get. Um I this Spring, I was supposed to take a trip to Vietnam uh, with the express purpose of collecting a very newly described species of Loripetalum, which, you know, you may or may not be sick of Loripetalum. I know a lot of people are, but this is a bright yellow flowered Loripetalum. And so that... uh, that was pretty exciting to me. The idea of growing it, uh, breeding it into uh, the the petals that we already have over here. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, if I were going to pick something out of my garden that's got me excited right now, um, I, my favorite plant is Osmanthus fragrance, the uh, tea olive or or fragrant osmanthus, whatever, but, you know, goes by several names. And there are um, some selections from China that have recently come in. And my favorite one is one called, with the bit of a tongue twister name, Quianan Guifei. Quianan being the region it comes from, and Guifei is one of the the five legendary beauties of China. And this is one that the new growth comes out hot bright pink then goes white and then goes green so for most of the summer it's green but for an extended period in the spring and then a little bit in the late summer into fall you get this this pink and then white uh and then you get the incredibly fragrant flowers as well see i i think that's that's one of the the great components of the podcast kids that we get to hear about all of these awesome things now, the job of people like myself, I guess at this point, Mark, because you're, you're busy enough, is figuring out how we communicate to you guys how to find these plants, because that's always been one of the real challenges sometimes is that how do we find them? In closing, Mark, give me your opinion on where do you think gardening goes, right? We've had this very difficult 2020 year for everybody. We've seen some people pause. We've seen some raised vegetable beds sort of show up a little bit for people. Do you think this is an opportunity moment to get those type people like we talked about earlier in the podcast and and trying to get them to that next level? Do you think we're at an opportunity moment here that we can't maybe let slip? Oh, certainly. Um, One of the great uh, things for me that's come out of this whole um, ordeal has been one, seeing nurseries are just busier than they've ever been. They are doing so well because people have been home and wanting to do things. And and I'm hoping that 
they are discovering that they enjoy gardening, whether it's, um, you know, ornamental, edible, you know, whatever, that they're really enjoying it. And I've also, um, in recent years, talked to some folks who really do uh, mail order indoor plants. And they are saying that young people living in apartments are ordering more plants than they've ever, than these nurseries have ever seen in the past, that they're doing fantastic. So there is this desire for it. And I think the more we move away from being connected to the land, the more that's a something internally that we need. Um, the more anxious we are, the more stressed we are, um, that, that plants always anchor us, that that's something primal in us, that's something innate in us, that, that plants calm us, de-stress us. Uh, and so we need to, to make sure we're there and we're welcoming for these new people who need this and, you know, provide what they need to be successful and recognize that that is a genuinely a something that can be done to help people um, in, in stress who are who are stressed that it's not, you know, the I, I, I'm fine with antidepressants and things like that. But there are things we can do along with those and instead of those. And and one of those things is gardening. So I think we're at a real we're a real. Uh, positive spot in in horticulture that that uh, people are looking for it they maybe have discovered it or rediscovered it during this time and i you know i think that's gonna that's gonna stick ties of these old abandoned rails wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own and I try to empathize with all they bear there's something about the sun that brings me back to life it's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way Burning in my ears So oh. 
for you 